Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com slash air. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. Coming up this hour, we're going to revisit some of our favorite stories of the year, including Riley Black's look back at the last days of the dinosaurs and that rodent biologist who had to, let's say, warm up to the subjects she studies. But first, as we head into the weekend's festivities, a dip into our archives for a classic sci-fi story about when science meets champagne. Ah, we've got some scientific advice on how to... Get the most bang out of your bubbly. Mm, Tastes good. Up next, we're pouring over the science of bubbles. Here are some facts to whet your appetite. Lipstick and champagne, they clash chemically. Frosted beer mugs, a no-no for flavor. And if you want to keep that open champagne fizzy, corking is not the answer. What is the answer? Well, here to explain is bubble master, Dr. Richard Zare. He is professor of chemistry at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Welcome back to Science Friday. Happy New Year. Well, thank you. I rest same to you. Thank you very much. Let's go through some of these bubbleology tips for us. Do you have any tips for getting the most flavor and fizz out of champagne? Well, it turns out that as, as it warms up, you uh, get more volatiles that come off when it evaporates. And uh, that's, of course, very enjoyable because most of our taste comes from smell, not actually from inside our mouth. So let it warm (laughs) up a little bit before you drink uh, that icy stuff. That's right. This also actually applies to beer, uh, Ira. Uh, Let me mention some things. Many people drink beer just from the bottle. And uh, while I understand how quickly that is to, to take in the beer that way, Because as I mentioned to you, smell is involved. You just don't get much smell when you put a bottle to your mouth. Much better is to drink beer from a glass. Mm -hmm. Now, what type of glass? Well, many bars serve frosted glasses. Uh, They think that's quite fancy and wonderful. But but actually, I think that's a bad idea, (laughs) as does my friend Norman Metzger in Washington, D.C., who pointed this out to me. Uh, it, It turns out that if you cool liquids that contain gases, they really, the liquids dissolve the gases better. And they, it is the gas coming off the liquid, which is part of the aroma, which really makes, again, beer um, be so enjoyable to many of us. Now, I understand that on a very hot day, nothing like a really cold beer, but, but in terms of taste, uh, sipping from a, from a glass that's cool uh, is really quite wonderful. 
Mm. Now, I understand, as I said before, I understand that as for lipstick, lipstick will kill the bubbles? Well, the the bubbles uh, are held together by this sort of membrane of various things that sur- surround the carbon dioxide that's making the, the bubble. And when you add uh, something like uh, too much detergent, somebody doesn't really wash out the glass well, or some people even rub their nose and then put their finger down, <laughs> and this kills bubbles. And the oils, any type of oil, including... Uh, uh, chapstick, uh, Vaseline, etc., uh, will actually cause the bubbles to burst. It really des- destroys the surface tension and ma- makes it uneven and the bubbles uh, burst this way. You've now opened our bottle of champagne. You, you want to save a little bit for the morning after. What's the best way to save it? I know you have done experiments about the best way to keep uh, the bubbles in a bottle of champagne fizzy till the next morning. Well, actually, uh, Hal McGee and I, he's the curious cook, uh, who, who was writ- wrote a column for the New York Times with that uh, subtitle, I think, uh, looked into this. And uh, the truth is that the best way to keep a gas dissolved in your liquid is to keep the liquid cold. Anybody who who's played around with water knows as you start to heat it up, uh, it, it really drives the gases off. And uh, hot water is much flatter, and so is any hot, any any liquid, uh, and it releases gas that way. Uh, mm. So you really, to keep your champagne effervescent, you want to keep it cold. So returning it to the refrigerator or keeping it in an ice bucket is just the right thing to do. You don't have to put the cork back in it or anything you, like that? You actually do not. Uh, there's enough uh, carbon dioxide in the champagne to go on for many days. We've seen that. I'll There's something you, uh, else that's interesting that happens if you leave the champagne uncorked. Just like with wine, you uh, get a change in its taste due to some oxidation from the air. And uh, that, that actually can be quite pleasant, too. I'll bet you have spent many hours verifying Oh, it requires this. it. <laughs> All in the name of science, I Of course. <laughs> but what about that, that, <laughs> that trick of sticking a spoon down the neck of the champagne? Is that all just an old wives' tale? Well, from what I can tell, the only effect the spoon has, like a silver spoon, is if it helps cool the bottle down when you put it back in the refrigerator. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think it it works. Now let's talk about let's talk about the bubbles in your on your in your glass of champagne or your glass of wine, because there's a whole bunch of physics going on there, isn't there? Let me start with well, a lot of a lot of chemistry too. <laughs> of course, you're a chemist; you would be saying that. Um, well, let, let's cons- let's consider how the bubbles get there in the first place, or what goes on in in champagne. I think it all starts with this Frenchman by the name of Dom Perignon, who lived about 1639 to 1715 and, and developed the, this thing called the Méthode Champenoise, where you take uh, some type of wine um, and you bottle it again with sugar and yeast to cause a second fermentation. And this yeast converts the sugar into carbon dioxide and ethanol, the alcohol we enjoy drinking. And you also, of course, have other things that are left over from this. You get a couple grams per liter of different other materials like glycerol and tartaric acid and lactic acid. And it turns out that that, uh, champagne's actually acidic. It has a pH of about three. But if you look at the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the champagne, it's immense. Uh, You know, uh, at, at sea level, the, the pressure of the air is one atmosphere. 
the amount of carbon dioxide in in the bottle of champagne when you opened it is something like seven atmospheres. It's loaded. It's super saturated. It wants to come out. And here's the problem. How do you get bubbles to come out? It's just one of the same questions about how do you get clouds to rain? You need some form of nucleation, something to happen. And now I need to tell you that most of champagne is actually just water. And water loves water. <laughs> water loves water so much that it crushes little bubbles. And mm -hmm. you don't see bubbles ever form in the middle of a glass of champagne. The same way you don't see bubbles form when you boil a pot of water and you look at it, you, the bubbles do not form in the center of the, of the liquid. Instead, they form on the walls, on the sides. Why? Because they need to hide and grow to a critical size. And they tend to actually form on various forms of, well, shall I call it dirt, fibers, uh, dust, uh, scratches in the glass, places to hide and build up to be a big enough bubble so it can escape and not be crushed by the water. So that's why you see them forming in, in lines. They may be lining up in a crack in the glass or they're coming off the sides. And, 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 and I guess you can revise or revive a stale glass of beer by... Nucleating it. <laughs> well, one of the simplest ways, but I, I don't recommend it, of, of, of seeing this effect is to dump in a, a, table, a tablespoon of either sugar or salt into a carbonated beverage. You'll see a great deal of foam being formed. Wow. Uh, sand will work, too. I don't recommend any of those three. <laughs> <laughs> well, does that explain why in, in soft drinks like root beer, which has a lot of fizz inside of it. When you make a root beer float and you pour it on the ice cream, it just explodes with foam because the ice cream has all those little nooks and crannies in it? Y yes, and, and, and ice cubes too. Let, let, let me talk about ice cubes for a moment. Please. Have you, have, have you ever noticed that when you pour any carbonated beverage on ice cubes for the first time, lots of foam, right. you drink it, then you say, I want a refill. The next time people pour on the ice, the same ice cubes, right? right. Much less foam. It's not that the bottle has gone flat. It's that the, all the sharp spots on the ice, the asperities on the ice, have melted away. And without these little nooks and crannies, again, the carbon dioxide doesn't know how to escape. Hmm. It wants to escape. It wants to go to one atmosphere. It just doesn't know how. I, that, that would explain why I've, uh, I've heard about bartenders sprinkling, sprinkling <laughs> some salt in your beard to make it foam <laughs> up again. It does. Yeah. <laughs> but, Try it. It works in champagne and beer, but I, I don't think that it, for the purpose of taste, it's the thing to do. Not at all. <laughs> now, let's talk about one of the uh, – I once saw a video that you created about uh, bubbles in a, in a glass of beer that they don't always go up. The bubbles seem to be going down, and you tried this with what? And you with, with Actually, with Guinness beer. Guinness. Famous uh, for all right. those bubbles in there. <laughs> And uh, it's, it's a, at first quite a puzzle. And you wonder, people reported that the bubbles on the sides of the of Guinness, a uh, glass of Guinness beer were going down. How could bubbles be going down? Is it that they just had too much beer to drink? <laughs> what's happening here? Yeah. What, what's actually happening is that uh, everywhere it's bubbling, but the, the bubbles in the center of glass uh, actually have less drag, less friction on them, and they rise uh, more rapidly, more easily than the ones on the side. And the result is they set up a circulation of the liquid. And bubbles are very slowly moving in, in beer. Mm. In fact, if you'll notice, champagne has much more rapid moving bubbles than beer bubbles. 
And we could discuss why that is in a, in a moment. But anyways, the result is that because of the liquid circulation, the bubbles go down initially wow. in, in, a, in a, a glass of, of, of Guinness or some of the other very highly carbonated beers. Well, one last quick question for you, Dr. Zier. Why are some bubbles bigger than others, depending on the <laughs> beverage? Is that what it is? <laughs> Oh, I wish I understood all this. Part part of it has to do with with the, with the size of the of the crack or crevice uh, that that you have, um, and uh, it's been mm. a mystery to me as to what controls totally the size of the bubbles. Right. Well, I don't we'll, I don't know the answer to that. Well, one. we hope you uh, enjoy finding out <laughs> more to learn. Boy, always a I good shall ex- study this. <laughs> Please do that, and maybe next year we'll come back and talk to you again. Dr. Richard Zare is professor of chemistry at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. That conversation was from 2012, and we have indeed had him back over the years. Please enjoy your New Year's holiday responsibly. Coming up, we all know what killed the dinosaurs, but what was it like on Earth when the asteroid hit? We'll imagine those last days of the dinosaurs after this break. Stay with us. Hey, folks. You know, it has been one heck of another long year. And before it's over, I want to remind you that this is your last chance to make a donation for 2022. We still have the dollar-for-dollar donation match in effect. So please take advantage and make your gift before midnight tonight. Don't wait. Science Friday is depending on you. Go to sciencefriday.com support. Each one of you can make a difference in our work. For everyone at Science Friday, wishing you a happy and science-filled new year. And thanks. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This hour, we're looking back at some of our favorite stories of the year, and we're going to start by looking back even further. I mean way back in time to explore what happened on Earth after that massive asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. Riley Black's book, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, traces what happened from the immediate aftermath to thousands of years later. The world changed literally overnight, if not faster. As for we humans, says the author, we wouldn't exist without the obliterating smack of cosmic rock that plowed itself into the ancient Yucatan. Riley Black is based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome back to Science Friday. Oh, thank you so much for having me back on. You're, you're quite welcome. You know, I know you have written several books, many about dinosaurs. Why did you want to focus on the last days of the, of the dinosaur in this book? Yeah, I realized that I hadn't really done justice to the story to borrow that Seinfeld line and kind of yada yada this extinction, right? Because <laughs> a big rock strikes the planet. We assume that it's you know going to cause a mass extinction somehow, but there have been other impacts at other times that had nothing to do with any major extinction event. So this seemed different, and I realized I didn't know as much about it 
as I probably should. And the more that I started to research on this, and I mean, paleontology is my beat. I write stories about some of these new discoveries. I realized that I had the story kind of not entirely wrong, but I didn't yeah, understand yeah. how much we had learned about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's begin where you just left off there. You say in your book that there have been other impacts of similar or greater scale that did not trigger biological disasters. So what was it about this impact that did? Yeah, that's the really strange thing, because it's not as if this asteroid or whatever this body of rock was, we're pretty sure it was some kind of asteroid, a carbonaceous chondrite, I think is the best working hypothesis right now. It wasn't just hanging out you know, near Earth and decided to stop in. It had been traveling towards our planet for a very, very long time. And this was kind of like a, a galactic skill shot in a sense, like, you know, it could have just as easily missed or come closer, hit somewhere else on the planet. But the fact that it hit at an incredible amount of speed that was so very big, and it hit all this limestone. So basically, these ancient fossil deposits, the ancient remnants of reefs that had existed millions of years before the impact itself that contained all these chemical compounds that contributed to the impact winter. So when you put all these things together, the size and the speed, the angle at which it hit, the sheer force of it, all these things came together and basically the worst case scenario that nothing quite like this has ever happened before in Earth's history and certainly not at such sort of a vulnerable moment for, for life on Earth. And all these things came together, not just in the first 24 hours, we had this incredible heat pulse and all this debris, but in the years following. So it really was every single way that this could have gone wrong for life on Earth, just about that's how this played out. It's really spectacular how quick and violent this was. Yeah, so it was the perfect asteroid storm, you're saying, is what it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let, let's talk about the, se the sequence of events, and that's what you do in the book. You go through the first days, months, years, eons, thousands, million years. Um, let's look at the timeline on this. You write that this calamity was as immediate and horrific as a bullet wound. Explain that. Yeah, so when we think about this mass extinction, or at least a lot of the visuals that I get or got growing up about this mass extinction, you'd see these emaciated dinosaurs wandering through this like nuclear winter kind of scenario that they made it through the first day, but it was really the debris clouds and the cessation of photosynthesis and all these big environmental changes. But we now know that they probably didn't even make it that far, that basically all our favorite non-avian dinosaurs, T-Rex and Triceratops and Montosaurus and all those were probably gone within about the first 24 hours because what happened in the minutes to hours Following this impact, you had all this pulverized rock, so millions of cubic miles of rock that's been thrown up into the atmosphere that start to spread, basically that start to spread all over the planet. You know, and as they're coming down, each one, each little piece is creating a, a significant amount of friction by itself. Any one of those isn't very much, but you do enough of that. It's just so much debris and so much basically damage created by this impact that all that friction creates an infrared pulse. It raises the air temperature all around the planet to about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you ever you know, broiled a chicken, that's about what you broil a chicken at. And T-Rex was more or less a broiled chicken within about 24 hours of this impact that it if you couldn't get underground, if you couldn't get underwater in somewhere, had some other way to block yourself from this pulse. Wow. You're basically out in the open. It was so hot that some forests were spontaneously catching fire based upon wow. some of these models that geologists and paleontologists put together. So it really was incredibly extreme. And then we had a cold period. That's right. About three years of impact winter. So you had this terrible heat pulse that did most of the major initial damage. But in the years that followed, 
you not only had the soot from forest fires all over the planet, you not only had all the dust and debris thrown up by the impact itself, but all these sulfur-based compounds that we know from observations during our own history are really good at reflecting back sunlight. So it's estimated that the sunlight reaching the Earth was reduced by at least about 20%, and that was enough to curtail, if not stop, photosynthesis over much of the planet. And if you take out plants, it's the basis of our ecosystem, it's the basis of our oceans, it's the basis of how we get our oxygen. It's something over those three years that not only temperatures dropped, but ecosystems almost entirely collapsed. And those survivors during those three years had to get by on scraps. There was one factor that made this extinction not as bad as it could be, you write, and that's a very unlikely source. I'm talking about volcanoes. Can you, can you explain this? Yeah, so in the past, we've had at least five mass extinctions so far. We may be entering a sixth, but most of those five, or at least a significant number of them prior to this asteroid impact at the end of the Cretaceous were caused by volcanic activity. And in particular, prior to the asteroid impact and after the asteroid impact 66 million years ago, it had incredible outpourings in what's called the Deccan Traps in what's now India, just, you know, thousands of miles just covered by molten rock and all the greenhouse gases that are being spewed into the atmosphere as part of it. And those greenhouse gases, in fact, counteracted some of the effects of impact winter. This is not what we think of when we think of volcanic eruptions like this. We often think about about them in terms of causing extinctions. But in this case, it kept the impact winter from being as bad as it otherwise could have been. It raised temperatures just enough to allow some forms of life to be able to survive when otherwise they would have gone extinct in the chill of that impact winter. So even though those volcanic eruptions were previously considered to be a contender for this extinction, it turns out that they kind of mitigated the effects of the asteroid impact and kind of came to the rescue for at least some forms of life. Yeah, that is really something new that we haven't heard before because we've heard of research that says the dinosaurs were already weakened by natural forces and possibly volcanoes. They were on their way out and the asteroid just provided that final push. But are you saying that's not true? That's right. It's, it seems to be the opposite case, that volcanic eruptions actually assisted some of these surviving animals. Most of the non-avian dinosaurs, if not all of them, were already gone by the time you know, this counteracting force would have come into play. But that's the other part of this, is that so much of what we understand about this extinction comes from Western North America. It comes from the Hell Creek Formation, the overlying rock layers in Montana and the Dakotas. There's so much that we don't know. So the decline that paleontologists previously thought they saw, it's because there are fewer rocks from the relevant time period. So just as an absolute level, we have less dinosaur diversity because there aren't as many rocks from the very end of the Cretaceous that actually preserved them as compared to 10 million years before. So we're really learning in a sense how much we didn't previously know about this mass extinction and how it played out. Hmm. And how long did it take for plant life to come back? There's a seed bank, or there was a seed bank in the soil. So a lot of plants, you know, they spread their seeds, they spread nuts, they spread their fruits as far as they possibly can. And some of those already exist in the soil and would have been shielded by some of the heat effects. It really only takes about a couple of inches of soil to really shield what's in the soil from the effects of things like forest fires. We know from modern day forest fires that get about as hot as that infrared pulse, that it doesn't take all that much. So that seed layer was there. It actually allowed beaked birds to survive. That's why we have dinosaurs around us now is because beaked birds were able to subsist on the seeds and nuts that still existed. 
but it took at least about 100,000 years before you started to see vegetation make a real recovery. You have what's called a fern spike, where we see fossil ferns and their spores everywhere in the fossil record around this time. And that's because ferns are what we call disaster taxa. They're really good at coming into spaces that have been disturbed, that have been disrupted. And they're kind of the first initial signs that life is beginning to recover. And then by about a million years after impact, that's when you start to have these thick, dense forests starting to grow up, that you have the the rise of flowering plants and angiosperms rather than conifers. So it took about a million years before anything recognizable as a forest started to reestablish itself. Very interesting. And one of the uh, interesting topics you talk about in, in the book is the evolution of the bird life following the impact. In fact, I found it fascinating to learn that it was uh, the evolution the, of, of a beak and not the teeth of the dinosaur birds. That's right. That allowed these birds to survive. What, what, what's there about a beak that, that's, that, that nature likes? Yeah, we've had beaks evolve multiple times you know, over and over again. And the case of dinosaurs, why beaked birds were able to survive, if you think about what birds and bird-like dinosaurs were doing prior to the impact, you had basically things like Velociraptor covered in feathers, you know, very sharp teeth. Right. We had toothed birds that were able to eat insect, insects and little lizards and things like that. And then you had beaked birds that primarily ate seeds, nuts, plant material. They were already adapted to this kind of diet. They probably already had things like you know, a gizzard or ways to grind up uh, that plant food. So they, in a sense, were pre-adapted to life after impact, whereas all those carnivorous species, there's nothing for them to eat because there are no more plants, there are therefore no more insects. There are very few small little critters for them to eat. So basically, if you were a carnivore trying to survive through this impact winter, it is much, much more difficult. Whereas beaked birds, they were already adapted to eating things that had survived. And that's why they're able to hang on. Interesting. So what else was different about plant than animal life post-impact? You see forests grow a lot denser. If you think about forests and habitats in the age of the dinosaurs, basically in those that end Cretaceous heyday, it would have looked somewhat similar to areas in like Eastern Africa today. So more conifers than flowering plants, there's certainly no grasses, but that kind of open habitat and open woodland, because di- many dinosaurs were big. Where they walked, where they pushed over trees, where they fed, this all influenced the ecosystem. It shaped it around them. So you're going to have dinosaur-sized holes, basically through any ecology that you're looking at. But once they were gone, once you don't have things like triceratops mowing down vegetation or pushing over trees anymore, forests could grow a lot denser. They could grow a lot closer together and they could grow tall. And that provided a multi-tiered ecosystem for their survivors, whether you were a bird or a mammal or an insect. Life could be different at the canopy than on the trunk of the tree, than at the surface of the soil or down below that soil. So it had all these different new opportunities for evolution and pioneering new niches open up. Right. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios, talking to Riley Black, author of The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Really interesting. You, as I said in the, in the opening, uh, I, I read a portion of your book where you said we, meaning humans, we wouldn't exist without the obliterating smack of cosmic rock. Why is that? There's no reason to think that the age of dinosaurs would have stopped without this. I mean, in a sense, we still are because birds are still here, but the kind of dinosaurs that we think about and see in the movies all the time, they would still be here. If you think about 66 million years, there's a very long time. But if you were to start from 
the day before impact. So, you know, T-Rex and Triceratops are still doing fine. Project that backwards 66 million years further into the Cretaceous. Dinosaurs are still around. They're doing fine. Like they said, there are more time, there's more time between Stegosaurus and T-Rex than there's been since T-Rex went extinct. So dinosaurs were the dominant vertebrates on land. They're the most prominent vertebrates on land for so very long. And they'd survived so many different changes between the continents moving around, volcanic eruptions, climate changes, sea level changes. They would have made it through. It took something really unexpected and unprecedented to really change up life and what it was. And our ancestors could have very well gone extinct in this very same extinction. It's one of the things that blows my mind, honestly, is that there were primates around during the last day of the Cretaceous, this little animal called Purgatorius is the earliest known primate. And it was able to survive where the big and terrible dinosaurs weren't. So it's not just that we evolved as a result of this extinction, but our ancestors, our primate ancestors, actually eked right through it. That is cool. Are there other things we can see now that are direct remains of this extinction? You can look almost anywhere basically, whether it's seeing all the flowering plants and their pollinators, that that's something that those interactions and those kinds of plants were around before impact, but they're much more prominent now. Or things like beans. You know, you, I, I loved a good taco. I like to put refried beans on it sometimes. Beans only came about because legumes evolved about a million years after impact, that plant life got this reinvigorated kind of evolutionary pulse after the impact. And basically plants like legumes that are rich in protein are part of that as well. So whether it's just our own existence or what we eat or the sort of vegetation we see around us, there are so many little hallmarks that we can draw back to this mass extinction. Who knew how important beans were? As, as you say, Riley, you've written a lot about dinosaurs and written many books. What surprised you the most about writing this book and your research? I felt like so much of it was a surprise because I had so many assumptions going into it. I think what really struck me was how the way the world recovered after impact how relatively quick that was. I mean, a million years is a long time, but to think that prior to the mass extinction, the largest mammals that we know about were about the size of a house cat. And then a million years later, the largest mammals that we know about were about the size of a German shepherd, and that's quite a bit bigger. And we're starting to understand so much of how and why they evolved and the pattern of their evolution. There was a paper that just came out. I wish I could have included it in the book, but it's still fascinating to me about how mammals were getting big so quickly that their brains pretty much remained at the same size as they had been post-impact, so that you have much bigger-bodied mammals, but their brains are about the same size. And it wasn't until about another 10 million years or so after that, after impact, that you start to see a lot more sort of changes to the prefrontal cortex and changes in behaviors and interactions and things like that, so that life really raced to fill in the voids that were left by this mass extinction in such a way that it was a really formative and interesting time for evolution in general. Like it wasn't a sense of progress or mammals you know, picking up the torch where dinosaurs had left it, but it was something entirely new happening. And seeing and understanding some of these interactions that we never got to view before, so much of this research has come out in the past five or 10 years. You know, Even the last year, we've made a lot of new discoveries. So this is something that's rapidly changing and giving us this view, this timeline that mm. we never really had before. Time for a new book, Riley. We'll have you back on that next one. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Riley Black, author of The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Coming up, we'll meet a mammal biologist who tells us what we can learn about humans 
from rodents. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Throughout this past year, we brought you conversations with some really impressive and thoughtful scientists. You know what? Sometimes the journey they took to get there is as fascinating as the work they do. The path to becoming a scientist is not unlike the scientific process itself, filled with dead ends, detours, and bumps along the way. Sci-fi producer Shoshana Buxbaum shared a conversation she recently had with a biologist whose career took an unexpected path to studying rodents. Here's that story. I got a chance to speak with Dr. Danielle Lee, biologist, outreach scientist, and assistant professor in biology at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. I was first introduced to her work when she was featured in a book for tweens called No Boundaries, which profiled female scientists around the world. And since she was a kid, Dr. Lee has been asking questions about animals. Why do they do what they do? She originally wanted to become a veterinarian. So I started off by asking how she went from applying to vet school to becoming a research scientist. In pursuit of trying to go to veterinary school, I had applied and been rejected and had been still encouraged to continue applying and to improve my grades. And I was just taking classes at the University of Memphis. I wrote a paper in my animal communication and cognition class that the professor said, this is a project. I was like, serious? He said, yeah, you could do a whole project and be done in two months. I was like, really? I could just do a whole project over the summer? He's like, yeah, you should, you should switch to thesis. I wasn't even a thesis student. I was just taking classes. Side note, it took longer than two months to do that project. <laughs> he got me. It always does. It always takes longer. By the fall... When I was reapplying for vet school, I really realized I was really into the research. I was like, wait a minute, I'm really enjoying this. And I wondered why. And I was like, you know what? All the time I was a child in school, in college, I was always curious about animals. So I always loved animals. I was always interested in animals. And so my interest in becoming a vet was because of that. And to be honest, I didn't know that there was other careers you could do if you were interested in being, if you were interested in animals. I thought you could be a vet or you could be a zookeeper, which I'm going to be honest, in my young mind, I didn't, I couldn't tell you the difference between those two things either. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I realized then, like, wait a minute, this is how I get the answers to the questions I've been asking and no one has given me a good answer yet. Like, I was always like, you still haven't given me a good answer. I was always asking, tell me why animals do that. Why are animals doing that? And I thought it mm-hmm. was as simple as you could just give me a straight <laughs> answer. And then I came to realize there are, there are no straight answers. They just aren't. They don't exist. And a lot of the answers I was looking for hadn't probably hadn't been asked yet. And that's when I realized, wait, this is what science is? This is what this is? I can have a career at asking questions and answering my own questions, I can finally just do the thing I've always been interested in since I was four or five years old. Tell me why that animal's doing that. The light bulb went off. I said, then that's what I want to do. But being rejected was the best thing that ever happened to me. And so so you did it and you got your PhD and um, you followed your dream. And so I want to talk a little bit about your research, which focuses on rodents, which are very underappreciated creatures. So what led you of all the different animals to study, what led you to rodents? So the professor who got me started at the University of Memphis, Michael Furkin, he worked with voles. And 
I thought he was mispronouncing moles. Like I thought <laughs> I was hearing him wrong. Uh, and I was like, he meant moles. Cause no, what, what is a vole? I never heard of this in my life. And then I realized, oh no, he, he meant vole. I had never heard of the word in my life. So voles are field mice. They're little cute, cute little field mice with little stubby, chubby bodies and short, short tails. And that's important because what most people think of as mice, like house mice, they have these scrawny necks. Like that's the thing that you really want to, scrawny necks and long tails. So you have scrawny neck, long tail mice, and then you have little robust body, short tail mice. Now the project that he convinced me to start doing based on the paper was with the metal voles. Metal voles, you can ask them really interesting questions about their communication because uh, during their breeding season, they're a little bit kind of everyone for themselves, like kind of everybody's on their own, they mate, and then they kind of go in their separate ways. And then they hope to bump into each other again when receptivity comes back around, which is about every three weeks for a particular female. And the females can be super competitive and like very, very, you know, disinterested in one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> super, super disinterested in one another during the during the breeding season. But then once the fall comes and the days get shorter and they're no longer breeding, that all changes. Hmm. They turn from, I don't want to see you to, hey, girl, what you doing this winter? You want to overwinter <laughs> together? Come over. We can... We'll eat roots and just, you know, keep our body temperature together. Uh, It goes from that, like big time. It's weird, but it's fascinating. I was fascinated by that. And so that's how I got started with rodents, because that's what was in the lab. And I knew I was interested in these questions about social interactions. I was really interested in like aggression. You know, like how is it that some animals, you know, win, always seem to win, seem to be on top. What's that about? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I started pursuing my my PhD with someone else who worked with voles. <laughs> <laughs> Just on the vole track. I was on the vole track. And and the thing is, I had told myself, I will not be vole girl. I will not <laughs> be vole girl. I, I got into this game because I wanted to work on, you know, like lions and tigers, and, you know, bears and wolves. I wanted to do sexy megafauna. <laughs> um, yeah, the sexy megafauna. That's what we all want. Then we all want that. <laughs> then I just... What happened is I realized I was good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one of my early inclinations that I, I had a knack for it is that when I had to go trap animals and get more, it was at a time where everybody else was having a hard time across the nation getting animals. Mm. And somehow I had gotten them. And so then I then now I have a reputation among folks who study voles as if you need voles, call Danielle, like call her. You know? <laughs> Instead of fighting being vole girl, I just just went for it. I was like, you know what? I started seeing the benefit of working with a backyard species, working with something that was always there, that was right up under our nose. And then I started learning about different species. And I was like, you know what, this gives us an opportunity to start looking at how these different rodent species are negotiating life, not just in the wild, but in the wild in proximity to people. And then for a postdoc, I got um, invited to do my postdoctoral research on the giant pouch rat of Tanzania, and got into that research because it's a, now talking about sexy megafauna. You're talking about a, a rat that's the size of a house cat oh that gosh. has been successfully trained to sniff out and detect landmines. And then also they can also sniff out and help detect to diagnose tuberculosis. 
The rats were being successfully trained, but the breeding was still kind of hit or miss. So there was some basic natural history and ethology, biology questions about the pouch rat that still needed to be sussed out. And that's where I came in. So I got to apply all the things that I had learned with the voles, working with wild populations of animals, and then trying to ask very specific questions about their behavior and their exploration and their behavioral tendencies. And so obviously rodents have interacted with humans since <laughs> since the beginning of our history. What does studying rodents and how they behave teach us about our world and our ecosystems? This is how I see it. Rodents, particularly the rodents that have made a living off of us and near us, tell us so much about ourselves. There's not been there's not been a single human culture across time, across geography, that has not had to contend with rodent infestations. So rodent nuisance are a part of the human history. We're still dealing with rodent issues. Like they're the key to understanding what potential next disease is gonna come out because they're the ones closest to us. They're the vectors. Things can spill over from them or they can carry them on their backs and then that thing infects us, the Black Plague. The rat didn't give us the Black Plague. They carried the fleas, and the fleas gave us the Black Plague. And so understanding their behavior and their ecology helps us understand how to solve problems. We know that rodents are a problem for people, whether you live in the rural area, whether you don't live near a lot of people, or if you stay near a lot of people in urban areas. They're a problem either way. And what we see is that sometimes it's the same species that can make a really interesting living in both the city and the country and the wild, but then other times, some species do better than others. And so I'm finding myself really, really interested in the scientific study of city mouse and country mouse. I want to pivot a little bit because part of your work is also in diversifying science and who becomes a scientist. I want to talk a little bit about our educational system, the pipeline of how people become scientists. So how does the inequity of our educational system fail Black and Brown and Indigenous future scientists that want to, you know, answer some of these big questions that we've just been talking about and thinking of different questions and different ways to go about it as you have. So here's the first thing that I think most people don't realize. The cumulative knowledge we have in the world right now is all based on individual people's personal curiosities. There is no agenda. There is no agenda. So everything that we have that's been codified and by this, this modern system is all because of a lot of people's personal curiosities. I study what I study because it's what I want to do. And so everybody else. Then think about who's overrepresented in, the, in those texts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying unintentionally, and I'm being generous, is that those are the people whose questions that matter. But it's also sending a message to black and brown and indigenous kids. Those are the only people who've ever asked good questions. Mm. And we know that that is a fundamental outright lie. Everybody since the beginning of time has been asking questions. Black, brown and indigenous people around the globe have been not only been asking good questions, but have sussed out the answers to a lot of important foundational things. But they're not credited in those books in the same way. We could just do better at our citation practices <laughs> and giving credit to the fact that groups of people, especially groups of people who we know have uninterrupted, contiguous histories for thousands of years that are solid, who have good histories 
and reliable and consistent analysis and data about how the world works. We know that the indigenous people of Australia, they told us things. We just, Western science just finally figured out the age of a mountain that indigenous Australians have been telling them is 65,000 years old. Is 65,000 years old. In other words, there's so much out there about the world that we either haven't been able to help get the word out about or inspire people to find those answers because we've been unintentionally, or maybe intentionally, but I'm going to be generous, saying there's only one way to science, and that's just fundamentally untrue. And there's only certain people who are particularly good at it. So we've been ignoring all this rich fertile bed of questions. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In the in the book you talk about how sometimes people are surprised to find out that like you're in fact the scientist they're waiting for because of these systemic issues that we've talked about that have prioritized mostly white men of being scientists and that's like the stereotype that we have for who a scientist is and you know, as a black woman, you don't fit that stereotype. So how has that, how have these experiences shaped your approach to the work that you do, especially because you also do outreach as well? It really makes me think about who I'm doing science for. So I'm doing science for me because I enjoy it. It's how I make a living. But I'm also doing science because I recognize deep down inside, I am ministering to my younger self. Hmm. That I want I recognize that the younger me wishes I existed, that someone like me existed, that I can look up to and be like, this is real. This is who I can talk to. I see I see what it is, and then that person or that type of person is accessible to me. But it's not just important to younger versions of myself. It's also important for it's important for all kids to see that. It's important for young white kids, young white kids from really well-off families to know that this is what a world looks like that's plural so that they they aren't surprised when they see someone in leadership who shows up who doesn't necessarily look like them. It's about more than just simply getting some people to say, oh, we got a few that made it. We're trying to fundamentally change the fact that all of us can participate. We don't all have to be PhDs to be scientists, but we all absolutely can be scientists. We all can be artists. It's, it's, it's not an either or. It's a yes and. And I've even, you know, I hear when I go into communities and I talk to folks, especially folks, you know, who are like middle age or older, they were like, I always liked science and I thought I wanted to do this. I'm like, you still can. Yeah, you still can. And I think that's the thing that surprises them. They're like, wait, what? I'm like, you can. You can do it literally right now, right this moment. You want to start a project? We can do this, this moment. You don't even have to wait. (laughs) (laughs) And to close, what advice do you have for the next generation of scientists, whether that be people that pursue master's degrees, PhDs, or people that are rediscovering their connection with science or just other ways to get involved in science in their everyday lives? It's all right to start exactly where you are. There's this perception that you got to go get something more before you can get started. Nope. You can start exactly where you are. It reminds me of a quote at Tuskegee University, lay down your buckets where you are. And that's because, you know, this idea that 
there's something to be done right here in this moment. You have everything you need right now to get started. And like any endeavor, you get started. If you need more, you go get it. Social media gives you direct access to scientists. Many of us are on Twitter or on Instagram. You can start following and engaging folks right now. You don't have to do anything big and fancy all at once. It'll come to you. That's usually how science is. It's not all things one at once. It's one little thing at a time. And then, like I said, it's all this, all these textbooks started with just people's personal curiosities and it all accumulated. It will all come together. Yeah, I love that. And and I think that's that's a wonderful place to end our conversation. Um, Dr. Danielle Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and to be on Science Friday. Thank you. I'm excited. Thank you. Dr. Danielle Lee is a biologist, outreach scientist, and assistant professor in biology at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thank you, Shoshana. And thanks to all of you for spending 2022 with us exploring the world of science. We couldn't do this without you. And we couldn't do it without the sci-fi team that makes it all possible. Annie Nero. Ariel Zitch. Beth Ramey. Charles Bergquist. Christy Taylor. Dee Petersmith. Danielle Dana. Diana Plasker. Emma Gomez. Jason Rosenberg. John Dankoski. Jordan Smudgick. Kathleen Davis. Kyle Marion Viterbo. Lois Parshley. Nahima Ahmed. Rasha Uridi. Sandy Roberts. Shoshana Buxbaum. Felissa Mayers. Thank you, everybody, for a great year. And that about wraps up this hour. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music, and if you missed any part of the program or you would like to hear it again, yes, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Of course, you can email us the classic way, sci-fi at sciencefriday.com. Have a happy and safe new year. I'm Ira Flato.